Everybody just stay put, okay? Just stay inside the store. I can't. I can't stay here. I gotta get home to my kids. No. No, don't go out there. It's death out there. It's the end of days. Stop it. Okay? Stop it. Please, everybody. Everybody just relax, okay? He's right. Let's just stay cool. Let's just try to figure out what happened. I'm sorry. I, I can't just stay here. I have to get home to my kids. Ma'am, no, you can't go out there. Could be a poisonous gas cloud. Can you hear that man screaming? I agree. Let, let's stay here until we figure it out. You're not listening. I can't stay here. Wanda's looking after little Victor. She's only eight. Sometimes she forgets she's supposed to be watching him, you know? Oh, is anybody going to help me? Won't somebody here see a lady home? That the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. No. Be afraid. Be very afraid. There's nothing to fear except God. Whatever that means to you. You're listening to a podcast exploring faith and fear, what scares us and what saves us. This is The Fear of God. Check, check, check. Is this mic on? Okay. All right, everybody. We're here. Day four. After the fog rolled over the hills, been trapped in this store for a while now. Been trying to get some transmissions out to you. So yeah, we're we're still we still have plenty of food, um, even though some bad things have happened to some of us. Um, we are here trying our best to make our way through the fog, exploring faith and fear getting to what heals us somehow through, you know, getting to healing through horror, as it were. And uh, with you right now is one Mr. Reed Lackey. I've been coming to you. As you know, the past, you know, the past little while, I've had with me my dear friend and compatriot, uh, Mr. Nathan Rouse. But to be honest with you, he joined that group to go out to the pharmacy. And ever since he came back, he has not quite been the same. Uh, I mean, he's just been walking around. Well, first of all, he just completely screams at the drop of a hat. You just, you know, a stiff breeze comes by and he's just he's completely beside himself. He's been talking about all of these apocalyptic devastations and he's been doing all sorts of, of uh, you know, just, just fire and brimstone navigation. He has just completely gone off the deep end. I'm not even quite sure exactly what we're going to what we're going to do uh from this point on i mean we do still if you're out there if you're listening if you are able to hear this then there's all kinds of survival things you could do but what i want you to do is to go to itunes <laughs> and i want you to leave a rating or a review about about this show you can, i mean you could call the authorities but really the point is 
I want you to leave a rating. I want you to I want you to take the time to leave a review. Uh, don't call for help. Don't call the store. Don't don't do anything else until you've until you've left. Oh, Na- uh, Nathan. Hi, hi, but hey, buddy. Hey, buddy. I, hi, I'm, hi, how you doing? I'm good. I'm here. Listen, so you know, life has been kind of crazy lately, and I wasn't. I'd say I so. wasn't sure. Yeah, I did go. I did pick you up some. You know what you needed from the pharmacy. I won't tell everybody about that, but, um, no, I, I appreciate that. I'm, no, no, yeah. it's good. Your secret's safe with me. Um, and, um, but I, while I was there, cause life has been, there's a lot going on, but I did finish the, finally, I was able to finish the movie that we were working on today. Uh, you would give me the heads up. It was that. Oh yes. Yes. yes um, yes. I was able to work it out to get it watched in time for our conversation. The one with, um, Oh, let me look up her name real quick. Oh, it's the Adrian Barbeau movie. It's directed by John Carpenter. That's what we're talking. About. I mean, we're. I knew we did it a while back, well, but well, what? Uh, I mean, uh, I, you know, I knew we've talked about formats where we kind of revisit, you know, material before. So I just figured maybe that was what you were intending, right? Are you under the impression that the 1980 film starring Adrian Barbeau and Jamie Lee Curtis, uh, directed by John Carpenter, is actually The Mist? Because it's not. It's that's the fog. Well. Well, okay. Well, you know, God, you're, you know, we covered it. It was I'm like thankful. our sixth episode. I know, I know, I know. Okay, well, I was I was prepared for this probability because you love to just like curveball me here Whoa. sometimes. But like, um, you know, I, I knew you'd do something like that. So I also covered my bases, you know, oh, believe, it or, okay. believe it or not, I did watch it. You know the real one. Oh, I, I, great. because I oh, because okay. I knew all right, all right, I right. knew I was like it's weird to me that we're rewatching the John Carpenter movie. Like I, I don't sure I, yeah. I, it didn't make sense, but I you know sometimes you're just you're just really wrong about things. So I figured maybe that's wow. what was happening. And um, I love John so, Carpenter too. So, so well, right, right, right. But like you know, so I did watch the real one. It is you know I, I, just everybody we are today talking about the story of Diane Fossey. Um, it is starring Sigourney Weaver. No, no, uh, wait, wait. Also, it, wait. Are you talking? Did you? So did you then to cover your bases? Did you then watch Gorillas in the Mist? Is that what you that? Is it's, that what you then watched? <laughs> gorillas in the Mist. Did you then? Did, what about Gorillas in the Mist stood out to you? Be like, wow, this is a real pivot away from our I mean, from. The fear of God, you know, well, like we've done more subtle horror before, you know, subtle kind of, I mean, I don't, I think it'd be, I think it'd be pretty scary to go just hang with some gorillas in the middle. I can't see them. They can't they see They cuddle me. with they, her. Like that's, that's well, the, I, mean, I, didn't, I didn't know that going into it, you know, like it's one of those, like, yeah, okay. it's one of those, like, you know, safe horror I mean, movies. It's like, it's the kind of horror movie you show your parents or whatever you watch with your parents. It's like, well, uh, nobody, they're like, does it get rent <laughs> limb from limb? Like, well, it's not those kind of gorillas. No, no. You yeah. Know. It's like, I mean. Nice I could gorillas. see I could see a case for maybe for King Kong, but not Gorillas in the Mist. Like that's not no 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 no. Nathan, what? I sincerely hope that you've further covered your bases and watched the 1970s Clint Eastwood directorial debut play Misty for me because that is <laughs> that is what we. <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> I missed that one. Why don't we just type this stuff out for me, man? I don't, there's because too that's many the, movies. No, it's because that's... Oh. 
man. Okay. Well, t- okay. I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. Uh, why don't we? Why don't we do something? Uh, perhaps on the fly, or do, you know, completely unprepared. <sighs> do you? Do you remember the? Okay. So do you remember? It was about maybe ten to twelve years ago. There was a film about a bunch of people in a. The, they get trapped in a grocery store because this big cloud uh, sort of rolls in. It was directed by the guy who directed the Shawshank Redemption and the Green Mile. <gasps> well, it's called, I, it's called, that, called I, the I, Mist. There's, there's a bunch of people in that, and one of which is Thad Jane, right? Yeah, Tad Jane's in it. Yes, that's exactly it's right. Tad, it's and Tad Jane. Tad is, the other, Tad is the other brother. Tad, <laughs> they're, they're triplets now. They're, just, they're, they're triplets. They like, they like the two Baldwins. They're just, <laughs> but they all like each other. <laughs> they like those Baldwins. There are well, Baldwins there's actually, hovering around. Believe it or not, there, there's actually a fourth sibling in the Jane family. It's the girl. And I'll, you'll never believe what her name is. Thomasina? Jane. It's Jane Jane. Jane Jane. <laughs> Jane wow. Jane. What a beautiful Thomas. piece of just organic live improvisational radio theater. That was amazing <laughs> that we got to the punch that we did not even plan to get to the punchline of Jane Jane. That is amazing. You did not. You, we did I not am, pre-brief that in the slightest. I'm so, so proud of us right now. <laughs> Holy cow. Whoa. That's well, all I got to go. say. Hey, buddy. Hey. So wow, that was fun. <laughs> I enjoyed that immensely. Hopefully our listeners did too. So listeners, listen. We know what we're here to see. All right. We're here to see The Mist. <laughs> 2007. Hoping, I was hoping you had another one up your sleeve. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's only so many, okay? I know. Um, I tried, trust me. <laughs> um, but uh I mean, we we could do uh, No, just go go forward. <laughs> So, okay. So, um, so yes, we are covering, this is Nathan. What? Nathan. What? Do you realize that this is not only a continuation of a series that we've started at the top of the year, but it is a, it is the start of a sort of a mini burst, if you will, a mini, uh, sort of a flurry of, uh, (laughs) of, of entries in this, uh, in this series, and that is we are tagging back in with our year-long series exploring, because we already have the Quarterly Kings. Uh, last week, if all went according to plan, because Time Warp, we're recording this a little early, but last week, if all things went according to plan, we had our Quarterly King 5 uh, with all of our friends, uh, and, and they came back. The Losers Club, Flags, Vegas, the Pet Seminarians were all there as we discussed Pet Cemetery. Wasn't that fun? Was, a good time. Was, I mean, such, turns out a man's heart is stonier. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was so great. Um, so uh, anyway, so last week we had Quarterly King number five, and then this week we are not only tagging back in with Hashtag 19, our year-long series, but we're going to do a few of these in a row. So we, we haven't fully decided exactly what each of the entries are going to be. We've got some great candidates, but uh, we're going we're gonna to spend a little bit of time for the next few weeks with old King, with, uh, with good old Stephen King, which always uh, tremendously excites me. But yes, we are diving into uh, his, it was a novella that he wrote, and uh, and we'll we'll get into all of the particulars of this piece and the film and the written work and all of that. Re- good re- stuff. Re- re- slow down, buddy. Slow down. You know, what, like but, uh, we, okay. we are we are revisiting nineteen. Um, <clears throat> we're okay, gonna do that okay. for a little run here because that is the umbrella. But you know, before I mean, you're just like just just slow it down, man. I was I was diving in. I, just, I was I was I like it. a tentacle. I, I just reached out and grabbed you. you. I was just whoa, like, yeah. whoa. <laughs> Please no. no, no tentacles. I mean that that tentacle pops out and it's just like what you watching, what you reading, what you listening. I'm gonna bite your arm off. 
listeners don't know <laughs> that in order in order to get into the spirit <laughs> what you did you had a little hand <laughs> a little hand oh my puppet, goodness little I'm hand still, puppet tentacle just sort I'm of still hung up on it. jane jane that's comedy <laughs> Jane, that Jane. is comedy. <laughs> Golly. Oh my goodness. Um, oh. I got beautiful. two. I got two. I got All right. those. Those. I those. got one. Okay. Um last week I mentioned seeing Shazam. And I did have on the front end of that, and we've ref- I haven't referenced this before, but I had like an extended trailer. I'm actually trying to move forward and successfully here, but um an extended trailer, dude, for uh the new Godzilla movie. Oh, you know, I haven't even seen one trailer what? for it. Haven't watched even one Bro, for it. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. don't have like some sort of. I, I am not like the target audience for Godzilla historically. Like, I, I just I don't have any attachment to that to that IP. Um, I did see the um, the was it Gareth Evans, Gareth Edwards, uh, Gareth Edwards, yeah, yeah, Gareth Edwards. Evans did the Apostle or Apostle. Um, yes. Uh, so Gareth Edwards. Godzilla film from I don't know four or five years ago. Uh, I don't think he's man. I was not prepped to talk about this. It just occurred to me that it's worth <laughs> talking about. But you you need to go watch a trailer for this. But I got to see on the front end of Shazam. They did this extended trailer. Man, the visuals for this are amazing. I can imagine. It, it yeah. just yeah. it is amazing, and it's called King of the Monsters. So like all of these, you know. Titans, I think, is what they call them. Yeah, in yeah. this mythology, kaiju. Um, that's a. Uh, that's no. <laughs> they're called. They're called no, kaiju. No. No. It's, what do? That's the Del Toro thing. Are you talking about Clash of the Titans? What do you? Do? What do you? No, a Del Toro no. thing. What do you? I'm well, the kaiju are in Pacific Rim, which is a Guillermo del Toro film, at least originally. The original know, kaiju is I... Godzilla. Right, right, I know. But like in the movie, I don't think they call them kaiju. I thought you were making a Pacific Rim reference, okay? Just, oh, just go no. with it. Just King of the Monsters. King of the Monsters. King of the Kaiju. Just saying, Whatever. Okay. Okay. <laughs> anyway, in this extended trailer, man, they had the like three headed three headed dragon creature. Oh, okay. Can you see? I'm making called? three yeah. I'm holding up three fingers. I, I like see those three fingers. Dragon. Yes. Like yes. Hail, like Hail and, Hydra. And, you're like, um, wigg- you're like wiggling them. It looks amazing. Please stop. Eleven from Stranger Things is in it. Vera Farmiga yes. is in it from Bates Motel and very. Oh, I didn't things. know that. Yes, Kyle That's Chandler from Friday Night Lights. It's it's weird oh when he gosh. says clear eyes, full hearts can't lose. It's kind of weird when he says that to Godzilla, but he goes and gets in it. You know, that's it. That's your trailer moment. He right goes there. back. At- <laughs> what was really weird is when Godzilla said it. Then I was like, oh, right. <laughs> it was really loud. Something. It was kind of hard to. Hard. He he struggles with the 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 script. <laughs> no, I'm not. Even no, no, no. It. Don't don't do it. Just do your thing. Okay, so um, I don't know if you've seen this film or if you had any interest in this film. I know I, at least I, I'm pretty nope. sure you have a general <laughs> you have a general affection and affinity for the work of the Coen Brothers. Um, have you seen the film that they debuted on Netflix, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs? I did. Um, I had watched the I'd watched it in its initial release when it came out. Uh, around Thanksgiving. Uh, but then I had the opportunity, and I'm not quite sure when it will be airing in relationship to when this will air, but I had the opportunity and privilege to be uh, a guest on the Real World Theology podcast discussing The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. And if you have not seen it, it it's the only one that I'm aware of. Uh, it's an anthology western. 
So right. it is, um, you know, six separated out stories. And Nathan, they are outstanding. I mean, it. I I absolutely adore No Country for Old Men. I think No Country for Old Men is a wonderful and powerful and very affecting film. I think Fargo is outstanding. But, and, and I'm not sure how many uh, viewers of this film agree with me on this, but I think Ballad of Buster Scruggs is a strong contender maybe for my personal favorite Coen Brothers film. It did is you, did you absolutely mention, wonderful. Did you mention O Brother? Oh, see, and I'm I'm very fond of O Brother, but O Brother would kind of barely skirt under like a top five for me with the Coens. Really? I do, I yeah, I do have a lot of affection for it, but um, but well, no, then it's... stay out of the Woolworth. <laughs> I'm a dapper damn man. So, um, <laughs> but it, uh, but no, the Ballad of Buster Scruggs is absolutely wonderful. Um, again, six, you know, thematically connected, but still somewhat compartmentalized stories, and. Again, it's available on Netflix. Uh, I don't want to say too much about it because with six separate stories, it's like where do you where do you begin and where do you pivot? There's it's full of humor. It's full of uh, we could be here all night. Uh, possibly. Um, I mean, it's full of uh, some some grotesque sort of uh, you know dark comedy. Um, it's also got some powerful observations about just uh, our approaches to the stories of our lives and what we want them to be and what they ultimately are and what we can and cannot control about them. And it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's outstanding. If you're at all a fan of Westerns, you should check it out. If you're at all a fan of the Coen brothers, you should check it out. If you are at all a fan of just good cinema, please check out the Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Um, I had seen it back in Thanksgiving, never mentioned it on the pod, but rewatching it recently made me re- remember again just how much I adore it and love it, and so I want everybody to see it. It's great. Well, thank you for that share. Um, You're welcome, Sonny. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Nothing mm-hmm. gets past this guy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, you're, this wasn't what I was going to share, but you mentioning... You're you are on real world theology. So read. I think I I don't know if I told you this or not, but I got to visit our uh more than one lesson faculty member John Vinalas yes, over on Two Big Soup. Yeah. You did and tell me that. like bro, I just got to like talk about my love for Daredevil for like an hour. Oh, um, that's I'm that's worried very that John you. regrets having me on because <laughs> because of my enthusiasm and inability to let him talk on his own show because like there's so few things in this world that you could be like hey talk about this and i would just like run off at the mouth you know excitedly for an hour but daredevil is one of those things you i'm just kidding i mean that's such a no no no, you you are correct a little bit there (laughs) but that is so like triangulating on so many you know, like sure, sure, fandom geekeries of mine. So yes, the fan if, geeks. Um, so plugging John over at Two Geek Soup, um, particularly, I believe it's the most recent episode we I, I did guest on there. Uh, he mentions you in the show notes, uh, basically saying, Nathan, uh, read where did you find this Yahoo?" Is essentially what it says. Understood. Um, but Understood. Yeah. that's not what I was going to share. What I was going to share is, have you watched Killing Eve? No, I've seen quite a few promos for it, and not. It, it hasn't hit my radar as something that I would specifically be very drawn to, but admittedly, I haven't looked very deep into it. Well, um, I think the first, so that we will, this episode will air, um, our Fear of God episode will air a couple of weeks after 
season two of it begins. Season one, I think, is only like six episodes, maybe eight. In my ongoing search for, you know, TV shows and stuff, I can, uh, my wife and I can watch together. Um, I, she lo- She's, a even to this day, a Grey's Anatomy fan and loves Sandra Oh. So I was like, hey, you know, Sandra Oh won the Golden Globe and or the Emmy. Uh, hmm. I can't remember, but she I, I'm almost definite she won the Golden Globe. But she got a lot of accolades for her performance in Killing Eve. Um, I would recommend it. Like it's, it is a really good, uh, kind of just British crime thriller. Like Sandra mm-hmm. O oh is not playing; she's playing an American as part of this British kind of police detail. Well, yeah. But the she is the Eve of the title. Well, I do want to sing the praises of an actor named Jodie Comer. I believe you know it's C O M E R. I presume it's Comer, but. If she's actually British, it may be pronounced differently. But she plays the sort of villain counterpart, kind of the Joker to Sandra O's Batman, if you will. Uh, Batwoman, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. And dude, the show is worth watching just for her performance. Sandra O's great, but she's playing more the kind of straight character, you know, just kind of the foil. Sure. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Jodie Comer, this, char- this actor who plays, her, the character's name is Villanelle, and she's just the um you know the kind of the villain if you will and she's amazing she is amazing Mm. she's young like but she's talented and like steals every scene she's in um it the the show is and and it is a good just kind of crime thriller uh so you might might enjoy it from that perspective and there's not too high of a buy-in in terms of the um you know quantity so anyway yeah killing eve is great the first season is already available season two begins in april and uh that's been another episode of What You Watching? <laughs> what You Reading? <laughs> what You Listening To? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> this is my attempt at my little hand puppet there. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Whoa. So, Nathan. Yeah. Um, do, so we- do, do you ever wonder if listeners are like, man, they're really good at like, repetition of their humor but do you think they pick up on the fact that those humorous repetitions are in episode couplets and that they're like huh it hadn't occurred to me they record these two at a time and thus it makes sense that <laughs> don't they, tell them behind the i mean sh- i mean sh- no don't look at the man behind the curtain <laughs> i'm sure we we astute listeners probably know by now like oh this was the second one in a given night i'm i'm, I'm right. sure they've probably at least uh at nathan's, least... nathan's really punchy now it must be the second one <laughs> <laughs> wow <laughs> reed's reed's really having a hard time reining him in <laughs> um so but no uh i don't know how to segue out of that so segue That's right. That's right. um so uh you did a, you we did Terrible job on that. Wow. <laughs> let me let me try this segue. Shazam! Now here we are. <laughs> okay. So so uh we are diving into hashtag nineteen, the launch of a flurry of three or four episodes here, um, exploring somewhat I, when I when I call them lesser works of Stephen King, it's just you know the Quarterly Kings are kind of the big big iconic landmarks in his career at least thus far they have been and uh these smaller uh pieces that we still think merit coverage but maybe not necessarily the extension of a coverage for like a quarterly king so this is one of three it's actually one of four films 
written by Stephen King, based on Stephen King work, um, adapted and directed by Frank Darabont. So the the biggest correct, one. Correct me. You didn't just say that King wrote the film, did you? Hey, he didn't write the screenplay. Frank right, Darabont. Right, right. Yeah, Frank Darabont adapted the screenplay, but the original work was Stephen King. So those four pieces, most people will know the three of them, but they may not uh, remember or know about the fourth one. So Stephen King has this thing uh, that he still does. It still exists. It is an active thing he does on a regular basis, and it is why he has an explosion of credits on IMDb. It is long known among his uh, fans. He has what he calls the Dollar Babies. Have you heard of the Dollar Babies? You know the Dollar Babies. I have. All right, so the Dollar Babies, for those who may not know, are basically... Um, it's uh, a sp- Makushla, right? It's the boxing movie. There's no. like a... It's like he has... I mean, you mentioned Makushla? He's got like a million of them. Yes. I mean, there's... A million dollar there, babies. Uh, yes. I, no, I get it. I get okay. it. I have no idea what... Then why'd you I, get lost there? What's... That's what they call her in the movie, Makushla. Makushla? It's been so long since I saw that movie. Yeah. Don't make obscure she, references to me. No, I'm She just dies kidding. in the end. that's that's a that's the spoiler alert that's like (laughs) you just caught a spoiler back there i'm just letting i'm just letting you know there's a spoiler back there for that movie it's like the that's like you're approaching that speed bump but the sign for it is like 20 feet after you hit the speed bump you you bump over it. The yep. undercarriage of your car is just completely mm. obliterated, and now it's like, oh yeah, you just you just hit a bump. By the way, that's the worst. Um, so, dollar but anyway, babies. no dollar babies. Um, uh, aspiring filmmakers. Stephen King allows them, uh, even as popular uh, and as prominent as he is, if you like the A team, if you can get a hold of him, if you can go through the sort of the specific channels, um, if a film, if one of his short stories specifically applies to shorter works, if a short story of his is not currently under license for a larger project, then he will um, license the rights to adapt that material for a dollar, for just a dollar. And the only requirement is the filmmakers who make it may not distribute the film for profit, and he has to receive a copy of the finished film. That's his only requirement. It's just an opportunity to, in full legality, make and adapt a Stephen King work um, obviously they know going into it that they will not be able to gleam any money from it, but it gives them the opportunity to fully and legally adapt a work of their favorite author, and I love the fact that he does that. Um, he has been doing that for decades, for absolute decades, and Frank Darabont actually acquired one of these dollar babies way back in the day. Um, it was a short story that I believe is from Night Shift called The Woman in the Room, and it's a drama. Um, it has some you know, somewhat upsetting elements, but it's not a horror piece. Frank Darabont acquired the rights to that, um, adapted that film. I have seen it. It is very, very difficult to find, um, but I have seen it uh, several years ago, uh, many, actually somewhat many years ago. Um, but then he went on to direct three other Stephen King pieces, The Shawshank Redemption, The Green Mile, and this, The Mist. Of all four of those pieces, The Mist is probably the only horror film. Green Mile has some supernatural, somewhat horrific elements to it, but it's still mostly a drama. The Mist is a horror film, a straight-up horror film. I can remember seeing this in the theater with a buddy who absolutely, at the time, maybe he feels differently about it now, but at the time, he hated this movie. Hated it. Entirely revolving around the ending. 
so I want to hear, I have lots and lots to say about this film and its history and all these other kind of things, but I want to hear your sort of uh, history with the film. Was this your, this was not your first time seeing it. I know that, right? This it was, was not, not. it was not. It? I did see it. I don't, I didn't see it in the theater. Um, I honestly don't remember the context in which I saw it. Um, like if it was with anyone, I imagine what it was, was as I was newly acclimating myself to Stephen King material, you know, a decade ago or whatever, um, mm. that you just kind of check off a list. Like, Oh, I'm going to check this out. Um, sure. and yeah. I, I will get to why some of this would be dissonant if all you, you know, I, I love it. I think it's a fantastic. Mm-hmm. I think it's a fantastic film. It's it's depressing as anything. I mean, it oh, is it is so heavy, dark, and it is heavy. And my yes. goodness, uh, but in terms of just, it's got some datedness to it in terms of the effects, especially. But in terms of structurally, it it does well. I don't know if I've ever mentioned this on the show, but I remember reading Under the Dome. And I won't spoil the end of Under the Dome, unlike Million Dollar Baby, apparently. Um, but <laughs> Under the Dome, one of the things I loved so much about it is even with of the book, I, I didn't bother with the series. Um, apparently, it wasn't worth bothering with. But um, <laughs> one of the things I love about Under the Dome is this sort of microcosm societal kind of examination. Um, yeah. Like that was really fascinating to me in that book. And I think this kind of replicates that though it drills down even you know more granularly to this as you alluded to earlier this grocery store setup um that that has clear kind of factions and things that present uh how to how to deal with what they're uh experiencing but but no i i actually have not read this text so you know Mm. i did i did do a little dive on some of the comparisons between the two and so i know some of that Ah, stuff but but i haven't read the text but no i i really I really appreciate this film. Um, I suppose love is strong, but appreciate is definitely an easy statement to make. And, and I'm kind of glad to be talking about it. Yeah. I'd say, yeah, I, I would say for myself, uh, I, I absolutely love this film. I understand why somebody would have difficulties loving it. Just, I mean, even the reactions that Darabont got, uh, and sort of initial screenings were very polarizing. There were people who came up to him uh, very distressed and distraught and said, you, you need to change that ending. And then there were other people who came up to him also distressed, also distraught, and said, please don't change that ending. It's too perfect. Please don't change it. Um, so do you, one do thing... You, do you want to go ahead and summarize that? Sure. So basically this the, the brief premise of the film, and we are going to spoil a lot because there's some things to go into uh, that will just be easier if you know as much as possible. So in brief... There is a huge storm. The storm does damage to uh, lots of neighborhood properties in this sort of coastal main town. Uh, Maine, not Maine as in like Main Street. Maine is in like the state. And so then uh, these uh, two individuals, uh, David Drayton and Mr. Norton and uh, David's son, Billy, make their way into the local grocery store uh, just to pick up some repair supplies, duct tape, stuff like that, some essential groceries because everybody's power is out. Well, then, while they're in this grocery store, over the horizon comes this fog. Uh, it's it's actually a mist, and it's uh, very pervasive and thick and heavy, and it sweeps in and sweeps over the entire town. It saturates everything. Um, they barricade themselves in this grocery store and very quickly realize that there are things Things within 
the mist. There are creatures of sorts, uh, very otherworldly. You could call them supernatural, but they're just really just other dimensional creatures. They're not like specters or ghosts. They're like prehistoric kind of monsters, uh, if you will. And they're in this mist. The grocery store then begins to divide up, to divide up into some differing factions, those who don't quite believe all of this stuff that they're seeing or that there is any danger in the mist. Um, those who are kind of meant to be our good guys, our primary good guys, led by David Drayton, uh, you know, Thad Jane. And so... Um, uh, there's that group, and then there is this ultra-zealous, uh, very uh, sort of cultish, religious group led, that rises up, led by Mrs. Carmody, who is the primary human villain in the film. And uh, she whips everybody into something of a religious frenzy. These factions develop. What I'm alluding to at the end is we will probably get into some of the particulars about what goes on inside the grocery store through the bulk of the movie, but eventually our... Uh, heroes, as it were, manage to make their way out into the mist, get into a vehicle, and begin to drive away. The mist is thick and extends for many, many miles. Uh, they make their way to a place where they have run out of gas, and they are basically stuck. Um, they feel that they will be surrounded by monsters, and our main character has a gun. There are five of them in the car with him, including his son, and this is very heavy, y'all, if you've not seen this. So uh, including his son, there are five of them in the car. He has four bullets. And they basically make a choice together that rather than let the monsters get them, they will end things right here. And he has the unenviable position of basically pulling the trigger. And he does. He pulls the trigger on everybody in the car except for himself, yes, including his son, so brutal to even think about this. And then the moment that happens, he is obviously on the verge of a nervous breakdown. He exits the car and begins to scream out so that some monstrous thing will come and find him and put him out of his misery, given what has happened. He's just sort of, you know, shaking his fist at the wind. And when he does that, he indeed hears a rumbling in the distance. What he discovers is that that rumbling in the distance is actually a huge tanker leading a caravan of soldiers and civilians through the mist as they are killing the monsters, effectively, dispelling the mist, effectively. He and his entire car of people were merely moments away from being permanently rescued, and he made that drastic decision to end all of their lives uh, just minutes before they were about to be rescued. That is the end of this film. <laughs> that is that is how this film ends, is our good guy makes a devastating choice and then has nothing to show for it but pain and agony and distress and despair. Uh, that is the end of the... <laughs> that's the end of The Mist. Um, that is not how the book ends. You said you didn't read it, right? Yeah, I know that the ending is different. I can't remember what the original ending is though essentially the ending is is a non-ending they they escape the confines of the, there's a lot of beats in the film that are uh in the book in the book they uh the basic core group of people minus one uh the uh, the older guy jeffrey demon his character's name is dan miller um he's in the car with them at the end of the film he did not make it to the car in the book mm. um but the other four of them those same four characters did make it in and so uh, uh 
in the book, what happens, because the book is a first-person narrative, it's David Drayton writing down his thoughts, and so the book ends as he has just basically written down his final words in a journal and left the journal for somebody to find. And basically what he says is, you know, this is the end of the journal, run out of pages basically, Um, we're going to try to make it to Hartford, and so he leaves that journal and they drive off into the mist. Um, and that's it. So you do not know what happens to them at the end of the book. They just drive off into the so mist. So there's, 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 no, there's not even an allusion to the mist dis- being dispelled? Not an allusion to the mist being dispelled at all. There's no hope that the mist will ever rise. Um, now, one, one element of the film that is alluded to in the book is David Drayton's character does say very specifically, he says, if worse comes to worse... I have a gun with three bullets, and I'll do what I need to do. So he says that, but that does not happen at the end of the book. And there's no uh, necessarily uh, idea. Now, they do hear this this word, this name of a nearby town called uh, Hartford. And basically, and, and the final lines of the book are, I have two wor-, he says, I have two words on my mind. One of them is Hartford. The other one is hope. And that's how the book ends. Interesting. So... Um, mm. And what's so interesting is because Darabont had been wanting to adapt this piece for many years, he got like a $30 million budget from Paramount um, and was going to make, you know, they, they basically said, we'll give you $30 million to make this film. And I don't have $30 million, but we're going to give you $30 million <laughs> to make this film. But their stipulation was you have to change this ending. The ending cannot be that bleak disaster if you're going to make this film at Paramount. So he then went to Dimensions Films and that went through a major, just a fraction, small fraction of that budget, even made this film without a director's salary so that he could get it made purely so that he could make it at a studio that would allow him to keep this ending. There's a a little, on the DVD version that I have of the film, there's a a little conversation that he's having with Stephen King, and he shares the story with Stephen King. He said, I went in there and I met with the producers at Dimension Studios, and I sat down and I looked him right in the eye. I forget the name of the person he's talking to. He says, I looked him right in the eye and I said, all right, if I'm going to do this, you can't touch my ending. Period. Wow. This is this is my ending. If we're going to do this at all, if you have any interest in changing this ending, this conversation needs to go no further because I'm not making this film without this ending. And uh, thank you know, thankfully they agreed and everything else proceeded. Like I said, it's it the ending is next level bold, and Darabont put his money where his mouth is because he even did not get paid for the film. I think there may have been like a if it's financially successful back end deal, but he did not have an upfront salary to make this film so that. He could have right. the creative control he needed to, um, you know, to do this. I have a couple of other trivial bits if you want to before we get. And let's, do you have any specific trivial bits to share before we get into the specifics of the film? Uh, you can go ahead. I don't have anything okay. super specific. Um, I just wanted to mention this is again about the text of the film that the the it, this novella um, was originally published in a magazine like a publication of horror anthology called Dark Forces. Um, and it was actually in a longer version. It was abbreviated down to be included as the uh, first story in Skeleton Crew, um, Stephen King's co- uh, collection. So it can be found as a standalone paperback, or it can be found as the beginning of Skeleton Crew, uh, or in that Dark Forces anthology. But it has one of my favorite opening lines of any Stephen King story, which it just its simplicity, I think, is very powerful. It just says, this is what happened, and puts a period on it. And I just love the... That's cool. The, tight power of of that sentence um 
The other thing that I have is that you know, Frank Darabont, uh, there's a big apocryphal story about his involvement here, but he developed and launched the Walking Dead TV series. He right. you know, was the creative control behind the first season. Uh, there's a lot of rumors and stories flying around about why he and AMC parted ways, and there's a, actually a full legal battle right now between him and AMC about shared profit deal and all this other thing. Um, but there is a tremendous amount of Walking Dead alumni in yep. this film. There's I like seven. That. Carol. Yeah. Yeah, Carol's in it. Um also uh Dale, uh Jeffrey DeMunn right. is in there. Andrea. Uh Andrea is in there. Uh Holden, uh Lori Holden. Uh so and that there are like four others, but they were must have been smaller characters because I did not remember them being in the show. Those are some of the more prominent ones. Well, but... and um I did see Greg Nicotero's name flash in the credits, uh who Oh wow. Oh became I think the production designer uh for the show and then ended up I think show running The Walking Dead. I'm sure you can. I'm gonna let you say it in case you caught it and want to. Uh, did you catch what what he's painting up top? Oh, of course. It's Roland. Yeah. Child Roland to the Dark Tower came. I mean, that's not the that's child it. version of him, but yes, that's Roland Deschamps from the Dark Tower series. Exactly. Those paintings were actually all done by uh, legendary uh, movie poster artist and just legendary artist in general, Drew Strazan, uh, most known for painting the iconic star wars posters yep. and uh several I didn't several know others. That. Mm-hmm. nice nice um do you do you have any other specific bits no i don't um no i've I mean, got can... one more major okay one, but um okay so he uh, there make way for the major bits yeah but, oh here it is um I don't know that it's that major, but I found it great. Um, there is a uh, an audio adaptation of The Mist um, that's like an hour and 12 minutes long, and it was done, it's specifically designed to be listened to in headphones because they have surround sound effects uh, where things from The Mist are like flying past you, and if you're wearing headphones, the sonic mix makes it sound like they are actually flying past you, and it's it's very impressive. Um, so that's lots of fun and very scary. If you can see, it is still available. If you can seek it out, um, I definitely think it's worth uh, seeking out and listening to. But my trivial bit is that uh, the character of Jim in this, Bill Sadler, he uh, is a prominent uh, player in Frank Darabont's work. Um, you would probably who know his face. Who does seen. he? Who He's is he the guy. Film? In this film, he's the one who initially insists that Norm the bag boy go out and check, and he's very confrontational with David Drayton, and then ultimately, like, once... Is he the one who becomes the zealot, or is he the tall, dark-headed one? No, he becomes the zealot. Okay. Um, So that actor played David Drayton in the Mist audio adaptation oh, and i cool. thought that was yeah i thought that was really cool so uh so anyway yeah that's uh that's that's all i have for basically just like trivial bits what you got for likes dislikes and all that good stuff i mean so many one actually actually i didn't write this down but a, a brief trivial bit here is they did film a scene uh for the opening of some sort of bad thing going down at the arrowhead facility and they just kind of yes up cutting it from the edit um I heard I that will, it was actually Andre Brower who plays Mr. Norton, that that was actually his uh, request, suggestion, whatever you want to call it. That he had it. dinner with, Yeah, that he oh. had dinner with Frank Darabont and was basically like, do you really need that scene? And then Darabont later reflected on it and was like, no, he was, he was right. We didn't need that scene. Yeah, it doesn't, the, the text doesn't miss it at all. Um, I do appreciate, I wouldn't have known this because I haven't read the text, but... Uh, apparently in the text, the Laurie Holden character, who's the teacher of the blonde in this, and uh, Drayton 
like like get it on at the grocery store at some point like have some sort of intimacy um they do. that that i was glad they cut i mean that it because it, it there is a world where you could start pushing some scenarios in this in this circumstance that stretch believability you know yeah um and on top of that i think it makes for a much richer sweeter relationship between them that that's not there in the film it just, no i agree it kind of means more um so i do like that that did not make it in King has actually gone on record and said that he now he hasn't implied that he would take it out if he could do it over. But King has officially said that he does not like that David Drayton uh, sleeps with her. And he specifically said, I don't like that he does that when he still does not know what has happened to his wife. Right. Right. Um, and he and, shouldn't. Uh, and yeah. he shouldn't have written it. Um, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but no, I mean, that was just a couple of interesting comparisons between the two. As far as likes, dislikes, um, I mean, the cast is just wildly stacked. I mean, there's just a, oh, yeah. a deep, deep bench of talent here. I mean, like I texted you, Marsha Gay Harden is both wretched and un- you can't wa- you can't look away from her. She's, she's oh, my gosh magnetic so so compelling um in this film i love the uh it was it is cool i referenced on us last week the desire and how i wish i'd been able to watch that film a second time like there's just such a a sort of liberating aspect that comes when you're revisiting a piece of work that like you can you can engage it less academically and more just kind of sensorily you know just sure kind of yeah get engaged right. with what it's actually after and absolutely and so you pick up on more filmmaking flourishes and i love the sequence in the grocery store as things are ramping up uh like there's uh we, we've hung in the grocery store for a few minutes and then uh the authorities are there and the sirens ramp up outside it's really there's this steady kind of ratcheting tension until yeah, jeffrey demond yeah. comes running across the parking lot bloodied yelling there's something in the mist that's oh a, man that's, that's a great. great sequence oh yeah absolutely i just love the progression of the entire narrative what you've just what you've just described is is incredibly effective but just the way each of the individual tensions ratchet up scene by scene by scene uh, I, I find very, very effective. But it has a nice rhythm to it, a nice balance, if you will, that it's not constant tension. That you like, after every big bombastic, you know, sort of suspense scene, you get a little bit of breathing room, whether it's just with characters sort of quietly planning or plotting, uh, trying to make the next decision, um, or if it's something a little bit more, uh, you know, pushing the story forward. You, It has a nice rhythm to it, I think. I was, I felt like, I was easily an hour and 15, 20 minutes into the movie before I even registered how long it had been. Like the movie's yeah. very propulsive. Yeah. And uh, I, I, I like that a lot about it. I will say, I mean, to, to call it this is a dislike is a little bit unfair. Um, part of it, especially knowing the budgetary, I guess you'd call them constraints. The, the, the CGI it, it does has not aged well whatsoever. And I, I don't know. I wouldn't go so far as to say that hurts the film um, mm. because I think the strength of this narrative is the people. And so, you know, but, but I do think with a more robust effects budget or a cur- you know, a 2019 type of technology at its disposal, 
some of these creatures would come off a little more threatening and a little less like just CGI tentacles, you know? Yeah, sure, sure. Well, what's interesting, and going back to our springtime for Shyamalan days, I was I was teased, and rightfully so, for occasionally, and I, this is a habit, I've not brought it up for uh, over a year, but a habit I have is if I'm very familiar with a film, sometimes I will rewatch the film in black and white, just turn the color off of the TV and watch it uh, in black and white just to see how it changes the tone, what you focus on different things, and it's, it's very interesting to me. Um, now, this is an instance I watch, I only watch The Mist in black and white. I will never watch it. I, I don't watch it. I shouldn't say never, but I don't watch it otherwise. And that's because this is a film that Frank Darabont specifically wanted to be in black and white. That was one of Dimensions, the, the battles with the Dimension Studios that he lost. He wanted it to be presented in black and white. In fact, digitally, if you buy what is referred to as the director's cut of the film, uh, you can buy it digitally through like Voodoo. I think you can even get the director's cut through iTunes and stuff like that. If you buy the director's cut, it is the identical film. There's no scene changes. There's no scene extensions or anything. Like that. It is the identical film, but it's in black and white, and you can't. And and so it's presented in black and white. Do you know? Um, and, have you have you read to know why he so passionately was after that? Because I think it is a throwback to like the old monster movies, the old classic sort of chamber pieces, those old uh, scenarios where uh, there's these just basically the old creature features of the 50s. And I think he wanted to evoke that again. Now, I will. The reason I'm bringing that up right now is because I will say they still look a little dated, but they look alarmingly better in black and white. It's the color. Yeah, it's the, col- it's, the color, so it's the color and the texture, yeah. Yes, yeah. and when your visual aesthetic is purely grays and blacks and whites, th- there is a lot, like for instance, I noted the scene when David Drayton is, is trying to, the, the sort of pterodactyl-esque thing is ablaze and right. making its way through the, that scene looks fantastic in black and white. It looks great. You, you can barely tell. Obviously, you, you mentally know it's a CGI creation, but visually, you can barely tell it. And, uh, and it, th- that looks really fantastic. There are still some, like specifically the, the big wasps look a lot better in black and white. The tentacles kind of still look a little rough, but uh, but there are several creature creations. The spiders look terrifying. That's terrible. And yeah. and and they look uh they look really outstanding in black and white. All of the shots in the mist, because you know the mist has, if I'm remembering correctly, because I honestly have seen this film four or five times and I've watched it only once in color, and that was in the theater. I think the mist has kind of a bluish tint to it. Am I right about that? I'm not gonna tell you. Oh, okay. Well, I'll just leave it to be. But sure, but but my point being, like, it's it's very sort of uh, it, it's just this this sort of white haze, the this yeah. this grayish yeah. white haze that comes over is really effective. Uh, so yeah, I recommend more so than I, most of the times when I watch a film in black and white. That's just my you know experimental choice. This is a film that it is documented. The director wants people to see in black and white. So if you have that capability and want to watch this film that way, I strongly, strongly recommend it. I think it is a better viewing experience because you don't get as hung up on how dated the effects are. I really think that's true. Uh, what is what's some stuff on your likes dislikes list? So uh, just cutting down through the list a little bit, um, I really, really love Andre Brower. He's not in the film very long. He's only in the first half of the film. 
Um, I like that we don't find out what happens to him. Uh, you sure. can make assumptions, but I like that we don't find out what happens to him, especially given the ending. I like that we don't know. But in the book, his character does pretty much the same thing, but in the book, it is definitively stated that his character does not make it. His character mm. uh, does not survive. Um, but the way Andre Brower approaches his performance is so alarmingly layered. Like, it, like he goes, he's bombastic, and he's very uh, big and broad, but then he also is able to bring it down to fine-tuned sort of uh, sharp barbs, particularly where he gets upset and thinks that they're teasing him about the right. the monster in the in the loading dock. Um, and so I just I I just absolutely love his performance, and it's it's one of my favorite moments in the film, and probably my favorite line in the film is that small exchange they have before he makes his way out where he says, I, you know, I wish I could talk you. There's no way I can talk you out of this is there. And he says, there's nothing out there, nothing in the mist. And he says it almost like a whisper, you know, there's nothing in the mist. And then he says, what if you're wrong? And I love his delivery of the, well, then the joke really would be on me. And I just, there's a lot. Andre Brower's an old pro. It's great uh, to see him in a performance like this, and I think he does an outstanding job with what he's given. On the same token, flipping that over, I put, Marsha Gay Harden is so amazing. And then I put, but Ms. Carmody is the literal worst. (laughs) She is is so dreadfully awful as a character, and, uh, and it is very akin to the way she is in the book. That is... Not I, really embellished very much. That's how she is. I mean, I think I th- I think my new life statement when someone like that I'm not really a fan of wants to get to know me better is I'm just gonna look at them real squarely and be like, uh uh-uh, uh, uh-uh. the day the day I need a friend <laughs> like you, I'll just have myself a little squat and sh- one out. <laughs> uh-uh, uh-uh. Oh my gosh! What? Yeah, she's like... amazing. She's amazing. Yeah, it's it's an outstanding performance, a very committed performance. She didn't want to do this film because she didn't want to be in a horror film, and it was actually Andre Brower. She called him, interesting, and he told her to approach the story as if it were just an actor's ensemble and not part of a larger horror film. And I think she just hits it out of the park. Well, it's funny you character. say that. I mean, I I didn't know that anecdote, but I think one of the notes I did make is just the casting in this. Not just as in you have talented people, but I just mean the these look like normal people. Now, yeah, you know, right. Laurie Holden's an attractive woman, and so you you know you can make a case, oh, she, you know, kind of from a just general attractive stance, but not Thad every Jane's pretty pretty sexy. Thad Jane is sexy. <laughs> I mean, he, he doesn't have the hair in this one, so you know, <laughs> I mean, you can only be so sexy without that hair. But point being, it's a diverse look. It's a diverse looking cast. It is, they, they look like normal people. Um, you know, it does feel like an ensemble drama, you know? Right. right. Um, and that's a cool experience, but one inherent to this, you know, kind of one location, single location type of piece. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. I will um, say, I will say as ahead. much as I love me some Marsha Gay Harden, as much as I love me some Stephen King, as much as I love me some Frank Darabont. When are we going to get it through our head that it is not Revelations? I know. And I think that feels like a really weird omission for professionals. I know. No, I know. Um, Well, it's even more alarming when you hear it come out of the mouths of pastors. I'm not going to get on a soapbox right now. But yes, that it it, colloquially, it is so frequently. What is a. What are you. 
movie? Where do you think that phrase "get on a soapbox" comes from? You stop. <laughs> oh, stop. Um. So, uh, <laughs> Steve Beckley, our continuity expert, should find where that where we initially talked about soapboxes. Yes, he should. Uh, speaking of continuity. There's probably a whole host of listeners that have no idea why we keep calling Thomas Jane Thad Jane. <laughs> if well, that's listened. a pretty that's a pretty recent you know bit. Like, sure, but if but if you're box, just checking our, our, out the mist because you never saw it before I wake, then that's you're not gonna know. Um, before I wake was like three weeks ago. No, but I'm go saying ahead. If they, if, if go they, ahead, if go ahead, Wilfred. No, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not going to explain <laughs> it here. I'm going to tell them to go listen to yeah. the Before I Wake the, uh, episode. Right. Um. But uh, so. A couple more things. Uh, I some of the stuff would probably classify as scares, but here's one line that I just absolutely love, and I love it when uh, old Mrs. You know, tough old Mrs. Reppel says she says they stone. You know, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but she's like they stone people in the Bible, don't they? And she says, and I got lots of peas. <laughs> just love, I just yeah. love that line. Yeah, I just I I really dig that that's, line. That's immediately preceded by her "Shut up, you miserable buzzard." Is that that's yes? That? She throws that can of peas at uh, Mrs. Carmody, and she's like, "You know, shut up, you miserable old buzzard." <laughs> she's like, "It's okay to stone people in the they do it in the Bible all the time." And I got lots of peas. I loved it so much. Um, <clears throat> I can tell. Yeah, I did. I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah. Um. So some of the some of the rest of my list you know I do love but they would be classified in the scares category do you want to pivot there um yeah this can bridge that gap i think uh marsha gay harden's death scene is amazing like that yes yes i mean and and, and not just because you've come to hate the character so much but just it the way it's executed i mean directorially mm-hmm. you know you 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 kind of understand from how that scene is constructed why frank darabont has the reputation he has as a as a absolutely more, as a more than talented filmmaker i mean she's she's whipped these folks into a frenzy and and again we haven't named him yet but toby jones like come oh, on he's man. so great in this you yeah know, he's it's so great. um it's arnim zola himself you know like he just <laughs> it's pre you know before i guess i actually continuity wise at this point he's already long since aligned with red skull and maybe he's re re rematerialized himself reconstituted <laughs> wow. himself here yeah yeah yeah. it's just mcu stephen king verse all of it but, you know <laughs> all things all things serve the beam uh hey Endgame's gonna come out like a week after this airs oh or maybe the week gosh. this airs well um what? we're remiss to also mention that like last week game of thrones started but don't even get me started on that i i can't because yeah <laughs> time travel right right (laughs) um but no so her death scene is just is really expertly executed uh on camera the burst milk bottle all that sort of stuff but yeah let's bridge some scares um other than uh, i I reference what i feel like is is pretty pretty low bar cgi but even that notwithstanding the doc massacre is awful Mm, yeah oh my gosh yes this was so brutal that's rough especially given you know the conflict that happened right before it started um and it's yeah it's very upsetting there is a lot of i'm not going to point i'm going to try make every effort not to point out every single difference between the book and movie here but the movie is pretty faithful that's what happens to norm in the book um the movie's pretty faithful diverging really only in a couple of smaller places and majorly at the ending but the rest of the major beats of the movie are present in the book. One major scare for me, uh oh my gosh. Do I do I quote it the way I wrote it, Nathan? Quote Did it I the way it? you wrote it. Those f- spiders. Whoa! 
Yeah, like, I, just, I just wrote Spider Man. Yeah, that's, that's oh, awful. Gosh, they Although, are, so, are you are you referring to the the like normal life sized version ones? Or are you referring to the the incubator version? Oh no, I'm referring to the I'm referring to the man who has oh, my suffered God. Oh, my one God. of one oh, of the God. worst fates that I have ever seen <laughs> to anybody <laughs> in anything. That is that's the worst. That's the worst scene of, of anything that we have ever watched anywhere anytime. That is that that is so dreadfully he just, awful. He and just terrible. went to the Spider Verse. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> I like that movie. I don't I yeah. don't like this. Yeah. I don't like this at all. Um and for those of you who found my language uh just beeped, but those of you who found my language harsh, yeah, watch the scene. You'll you'll agree. Yeah. I, you will likely say uh something very similar. Um Something that I think is just dreadful. I, I, I wrote it in my sort of scares category, but it's just so dreadful. Uh, the way they respond to Private Jessup after they have you just you know, jump sort- into the worst stuff. I mean, you like skip the whole nighttime sequence with the bugs and the birds and the swollen necks and the. Oh, I have starting. that on my list too. I okay. have that on my list too. Yeah. But yeah, no. I mean, you, not, you went to the existential one. Let's let's keep with the freaky first. Okay. The bug, okay. The, yes. The, the the giant nasty bug on Carmody's bosom. You know, Whoa. hey, come on. Is that a stand quote? She says, my life for you. Oh, that's absolutely a stand quote. Yeah, there's yeah. no way. Yeah. No way it would be otherwise because it's not yeah. a novel. Hashtag um, 19. Yeah. Um, it's interesting and this. I don't want to pivot us to theme, but uh, like it's interesting. Take note, uh, listeners, of the fact that this dreadful wasp thing does not sting her and she perceives that as an endorsement of her zealous righteousness um, that this wasp lands directly on her and does not sting her. I don't want to get too deep into that because I have some thoughts on it for perhaps Sounds for later. Like but it. but uh, yeah, little, so little teaser, little teaser. But yeah, um, when that first wasp hit the window, I jumped. Oh my gosh! Yeah, that awful. Yeah, that that's, so a, that's awful. a that's a poop club moment. <laughs> Yes, it is. Oh my gosh, so um, dreadful. Well, yeah. So, so you, I, I pulled you back from it, but but go into where you were. I don't, Man, I don't even so know the character's name. Private Jessup. So, and Private Jessup is actually uh, one of the additional uh, fabrications for the film. Uh, that character is not in the book at all. In the book, the two military agents that hang themselves uh-huh. um, are the only military presence in the grocery store. Um, so that scene exists, but Private Jessup was a, an invented character, particularly to raise the stakes and heighten oh, the stakes. Does it ever? Uh, yes, indeed. It is so oh painfully dreadful what they do to him and how they respond out of fear and bloodlust, and it is just, it's awful. It's absolutely awful. Um, yeah, so that's that's pretty awful. Um, my Ollie's, heart. Ollie's Ollie's death kind of sucks. Oh, it's so bad. It's so bad. This big, like, lobster, like, red lobster Ugh, bis. Lobstrosity. Like, the lobstrosity, yes, um, comes out and just, like, snaps him. It's just, yeah, it's, it's you just really... said lobster bisque? That thing's going to come was... for you. You better be careful. <laughs> <It's> gonna... <laughs> What'd you call me? Um, oh. So, but then the, uh, the other uh, thing that I was, that I just find so dreadful, there's two things that I just find really, really dreadful. Uh, again, I put them in scares, could easily pivot to theme, but they don't have to. Um, first is something that happens very early in the film, and that is, and it happens in the book, uh, but there's a major difference in the book and Darabont's uh, film. 
is when uh, she's Carol uh, uh, McBride is the actor is the actor's last name. I'm trying to Melissa. remember what Melissa McBride. Yes. Um, so when Melissa McBride, which is a really powerful moment, is yeah. begging for somebody to accompany her home, and the way she put, you know, is will anybody see a lady home? That's a line from the book. Will anybody? Won't anybody see a lady home? And uh, she just makes her way out anyway. In the book, that character does not make it, and they discover her body as they are traversing out from the uh, from the mist. But I find it significantly powerful and haunting that in this iteration she does make it, mm-hmm. and and it is all the more damning when she looks at David Drayton and he's like, "I've got my own to worry about." You know, and uh, and it's just a really, really haunting moment. The other thing that that haunts me tremendously is, for obvious reasons, little Billy Drayton's line to his dad, promise me you won't let the monsters get me. Oh, Uh, my gosh. I'm glad you brought him up because he was on my notes earlier. That kid's great. Oh, he's wonderful in this. Yes. Yes. He's really outstanding. That's a that's a real actor. I mean, and he you know. and so much is demanded of him yeah. in this in this film. Yeah, he does he does an outstanding job, really outstanding job. Um, uh, one last note I have on scares, and I can happily bounce this into theme here, or you know, let us yeah. go there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is I love for for all the grief I might give much of the uh, real visible CGI. Pool. The scene of that last mammoth creature as the cars bouncing—that's so outstanding, isn't it? Oh, so outstanding. Great. And that is one in the in the book. That is a really, really like it, it's a it's sort of a fan favorite moment because they do it's it's almost an echo of Jurassic Park. You know, twenty years before Jurassic Park came out, but they're sitting in the jeep. The whole jeep is just convulsing with some mammoth thing and it you know the echoes that it points to how expansive the mist must be if a creature of that size exists in it it's right. oh, it's a fantastic scene but it's a really really scene. great execution in the film of that image of them looking up through the windshield and the car just bouncing up and down it's great oh my gosh it's great yeah that is that is a really really wonderful scene so how you want to how you want to wrestle this one down, brother? Oh man, it's so difficult. It's so difficult. I'll make a comment that I've made many, many times before. I'm going to presume that most of our listeners have also seen Frank Darabont's wildly more popular uh, and rightfully so film, The Shawshank Redemption. I have conversations from time to time with people about why you watch horror films, why you make films like this, what you do, you know, all that sort of thing. And I've I've pointed out to people before that I was like, well, Frank Darabont made two films which could loosely, which you could loosely summarize at least one of the themes as never give up hope. But there are two ways to tell that story. And the first way, somewhat the Shawshank Redemption way, is never give up hope and all may be right in the end. Um, the other way to tell that story is the mist way, <laughs> where uh, you know at least at least a central theme is not to give up hope, but by showing a character who gives up hope, as we've already expressed, literally moments before a hope held onto would have been fulfilled, and and how dreadful and devastating a scenario like that is and how powerful it is to consider those kinds of options and those kinds of possibilities when you're trying to wrestle down what is right and good for you to do in any given 
moment or scenario. I don't know if that's a starting place for us, but that is definitely on my mind a lot about this film. Well, I think a touch and go theme, I, I, I am not ignoring what you just said because I, because I want that general conceit to be our landing place, but we, we can't walk past, uh, I believe Laurie Holden's character's name is Amanda, but, yeah. um, the confrontation in the loading dock and it's not Drayton. Who else is in there? Ollie's in there. Is it Toby? Dan? Yeah. I think, I think it's Ollie who says, if you scare people badly enough, you can get them to do anything. They'll turn to whoever promises a solution. Yep. I wrote that down too. That's oh, a, um, man, a rather prophetic line for our, for what Nathan? No, that's all right. I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll let you take yourself there. Um, so I, I didn't know the kind of, Honestly, in a vacuum, I would have said I knew that Darabont did Shawshank and Green Mile. I was not; it wasn't on my mind when I was rewatching this, so oh, yeah. I wasn't pondering those as in conversation with each other. Um, and in fairness, I'm not sure that they are. I just I usually put them there, but yeah, gotcha, gotcha. But this, uh, and and I also had not read the missed text. So at the top of our conversation, once we were finally getting into the text or, or the material you said of the prose that a line from it is there were two words on my mind one is hartford the other is hope exactly um, yep. it's the last I, line of the book okay okay um i mean it's interesting i didn't know these things re-watching the film and so it says something that that's the frequency i was able to tap into yeah, because because those concepts were primary to me. And in fact, what I wrote down is this is not a hopeful story by any means, but is it a hopeful film? And mm. and I guess we would sort of depend on how we define hope. Right. Mm. I mean, I, I've referenced this numerous times on the show. Uh, I if if you, my friend, can push me towards this, knowing your recent acquisition I'm, I'm, I might get a tattoo this year, but like mm. the, uh, this notion of the fool for hope is something that has, mm. uh, circled my spirit and not even circled, embedded itself in my spirit and, and, and being, uh, this last half decade because having endured my own journey through a mist, I, I know what it's like to feel that the monsters are around you and, that you just don't know if the mist is going to evaporate. Yeah. And, yeah. and so I wouldn't have put those terms on it, but, but that matters. And, and those, that is an applicable, uh, uh, metaphor. And in my, like literally in the thick of my mist, I, I recognized the, the observable foolishness, of pushing into what I was pushing into that the choices I was making to press forward. And so, but, but I knew this, the choices I was making was born of a hope I had. And so mm. this, this fool for hope idea came, you know, has, has, has kind of emblazoned itself kind of in and on my spirit. And, and what I wrote down and, and, you know, we can feel free to, use this as a launch pad for these ideas, but you know, what I wrote is what is hope and 
this is me just sort of thinking out loud for myself too of how to articulate this but but appropriating some of the imagery and you made a good point a minute ago about why why do we watch horror you know one of those Mm -hmm. things one of those things is to be able to name and diminish fear right yeah those or, or and or those things that would seek to instill it in us seek to instill fear in us well this is another one that that, you know you use these things as metaphor you look at what david drayton goes through only to end up doing Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. what i wrote is that hope is in a parched arid dry wasted cracked land that is overrun with monsters and predators which are pulling flesh from friends and rending the spirit from loved ones. Somehow, hope is fragile, tentative, unsure, often weary, mostly tiny steps through the mist, pressing into and through and past that as best as we are able, trusting the spirit to guide as loss after loss plagues heading forward, letting none succumb as able, heading forward to a dawn and a swift sunrise of rescue. Mm-hmm. And like this movie, the reason this movie is heartbreaking, this is what's fascinating about this movie and why it's interesting to me. I, I know nothing of Darabont's kind of personal life and journey, but there's such a case to be made that this movie is such a cautionary tale about giving up hope and, and why it's ending is such a litmus test for people's spirits. You know, it's mm. like, it's, it's, it's utterly heartbreaking. I'm not diminishing that. Like, like absolutely. It is terrible and tragic, but you know, it's, it's our people, are people recoiling from just the terrible tragedy or are they not able to recognize in them own, in the, in their own selves? Well, what would I do? You know, would I? Right. Right would I press forward into this darkness with fool? It's foolishness. It is foolishness. Like no one, no one can practically like on, on its face. You are, you can't indict David. Like, Mm. you know, like on its face from a purely rational, reasonable, logical, like practical level. He isn't quote unquote wrong. Mm. If that makes sense. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I have a little bit of pushback, but not to yeah, your yeah, idea. Yeah, yeah, and and hear yeah. me. I, yeah, I'm I'm not saying this is an appropriate course of action. I'm simply saying, sure, sure. Given the circumstances, mm-hmm. you at, you at least understand. You, yeah, you can, you yeah, can yeah, see yeah. why this character in Darabont's version does what he does. Mm-hmm. And yet, we recognize in it by his own gut reaction at the end that. He recognizes, I gave up hope. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And that's a really powerful, and that's that's all I'm trying to say in terms of like it's a litmus test. Like, are you recoiling just because he does this terrible thing, or are you recognizing his own awareness of not the physical act he's performed, but the spiritual loss he's embraced? Yes. You know yes. what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, the sp- I wouldn't call David an evil character, but there's a way in which this act untethers him from 
his own humanity. Oh, mm-hmm. Anyway, oh, yeah. I'm, I'm just kind of riffing, so feel free to jump in. No, that make, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. So there's this fundamental defeat that they... It strikes me as so powerful and definitely cautionary that they see this as the only potential option for right, them. Right. Because on the now they and this is some of to your point, they have witnessed atrocities. Right. It is not as if these fears that drive them to these choices are pure fabrication. One of the reasons Mrs. Carmody is able to whip everyone into a frenzy, including Jim, who was initially very contentious to her. One of the reasons she's able to make him a zealot for her cause is because of what he witnesses in the pharmacy and what he begins to see play out. And then you suddenly start to get super biblical. And I use that word biblical as in like, you know, Old Testament apocryphal kind of thing, like where it's like, oh my gosh, there's some monsters be swarming around in the mist and I do not know what to do. And it is something that they they see no other alternative. They don't see an ending for themselves that does not contain pain and suffering and horrors beyond their imagination of what is cope-worthy. And we, we didn't even, I'm sorry to cut you off, but to, to further substantiate where, where you're going here, like one of the most challenging scenes in this film isn't the act. It's that moment in the car before it. Yes. It's that it's yeah. that mm-hmm. mutual unspoken agreement they all make between themselves. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's crazy how it's done with no words. Oh, it's, it's crazy. It's brilliant. It's, a, yeah, it's, it's an crazy. amazing scene. And it is something that I think uh, you, um have you seen I'm not going to go into too much about it because maybe we'll eventually cover it or whatever, but have you seen the original screenplay that screen that Stephen King wrote for television called Storm of the Century. Have you ever seen that? Uh, I know what you're talking about, but no, I haven't seen it. Okay, so there is an element to that. That is also a rather grim tale, um, as much as I'll say about it, but there is an element to it where he's exploring, and King has explored this in a couple of places. We've talked before how there's there's some stories that end with you know, people of faith being validated, vindicated, often it's their faith that sort of carries them through a thing, and and this hopeful notion sort of gets them to the other side of a piece. But King also has a handful of stories where the exact opposite happens, where it seems like generally decent people make a couple of choices to either align themselves on a particular path, or they give up hope at crucial key moments, and things just do not go well for them despite their inherent decency. And um, one of the things, it's a line in Storm of the Century. This is a very bleak line, and it does not align with my theology, but I'm pointing it out to point something else out about the mist. In Storm of the Century, a character is reflecting on the story of Job, and he says that his best understanding, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but he says, my best understanding of what Job went through is a man looking to God and saying, why me? And God looking back at him and saying, there's just something about you that pisses me off. Wow. And it's a, it's a terribly bleak vision of, you know, just, just interaction with a force beyond yourself. But as you approach, now pivoting back from Storm of the Century into The Mist, is 
there is this sensibility. Not only do would they not turn to hope in like a you know a divine providence, as it were, because their expression of the expression of faith, and I you, listeners don't see the air quotes I'm making. The expression of faith that they have borne witness to is the Miss Carmody version, right? And and it is it is bloodlusty, and it is it is uh, crying for the sacrifice of women and children, literally. Right. Oh God, and, that scene. Uh, and by the way, you mentioned I still don't like the moment. I still don't think King should have wrote should have written it in the book. Part of what drives her to want them mm. as the sacrifices is because she knows what they've done gotcha, and so that and gotcha. she she uses that as fuel for the whole thing but anyway so um the the thing that is the version i mean when you find yourself in that world where all objective evidence around you seems to make the verdict that you're alone that's it you're alone and there you are only surrounded by unspeakable pain and unimaginable agony and you don't want to go out like that and you want to you know to make this this choice of okay well it's it's better to to just end this way uh, of my own agency rather than you know suffer whatever it is out there in the mist and i yeah i i don't even know how effectively to wrestle it down but that utter abandonment of hope the 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 declaration inside your heart and mind that there is no reason for me to even see what happens. There's no reason for me to even hold on. They could have easily just, I mean, the, the van is locked. They could have easily just, okay, well, there's nothing immediate here. We don't have to get out of the van or out of the, the Jeep. We can just sit in this Jeep and wait things out. And had they done that for, Nathan, 10 more minutes... That's all it would have taken for them to be. And there's an old song by Rich Mullins, um, and it's uh, it, it's it's a very sweet song, but um, it's called "Verge of a Miracle," mm, and and it talks a lot about that. Like w- you walk right up to the brink of breakthrough mm-hmm. and turn around because you think you think there's too much, you know, there's too much left to to go, um, and that you can't push any further. And stepping right well, up to the edge, yeah, go ahead. I just think like what's powerful to me and you brushed up against this a minute ago, like on the one hand, I don't indict the, the per, those passengers at the end. Like I'm not, again, I'm not endorsing. I'm simply saying based on their given evidence and what they'd borne witness to as answers, they did what they thought was correct based on the given evidence, based on the given circumstances. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting to me and what I wrote down about this movie is that why I love the microcosm approach that this grocery store scenario provides is what it tells you is that civics, politics, and defense, social structure, religion, none of these things will save you in the mist. Mm. The only thing that will save you is tentative, tiny, measured, purposeful, intentional steps forward, born only of the hope that the mist will dissipate, and that is itself faith, right? Mm. They, and again, I, I don't, I don't indict them for this. I think 
they were not equipped to to handle this but that is that is the utmost that's that is the definition of faith is it not like that yeah the mist will lift well yeah we saw them and this happened and that happened and that the mist will lift well while yeah. you have no pr- the mist will lift but she's a crazy person right that's not faith it's not it is religion it is mm. scare tactic it is uh power and control it, 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 it is superstition mm-hmm. um and and my Dear friend, you know this. This is what we see in our culture today. Like all yeah, of that yeah. is all of that is active and present and forceful that tries to prescribe you a way through the mist when when what is actually required is the foolishness that says I I have faith that the mist will lift. Because, yes you know and you can you can finish this statement of because god loves me that's not that's that feels very reductive and trite i'm simply saying faith faith is those tentative steps forward born of the hope that mm. care is is right there you know like i, I just had that image totally mixing you referenced springtime for shaman a minute ago but that the um ivy's hand holds out in the you know waiting for yeah. lucius like yeah. that idea that those tentative steps forward that that hold no proof of rescue no no okay so nathan don't you're gonna make the preacher come out in me in just a second because here's the here's the thing is so what you're what you're declaring i'm gonna two thoughts in quick succession the it's not only faith that the mist will lift it's faith that even if it doesn't there Mm. is a task ahead of me the Mm. woman with children at home Mm-hmm. does not have any assurance that the mist will lift. Right. She just knows she has children at home that need her. Mm. And for all of the devastation of David, we like David Drayton. We like all the people in that car. We like them. They're 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 good, decent people. But at the end, there is a woman who cared more about her two children. And they even they even tried to entice her by saying, like, hey, for their sake, stay in right. the mist. And she's like, yeah. no, for their sake, I've got to venture out into it. I've got to try this. And she is ultimately among the rescued. The other thing that you just woke up in me, uh, pun intended, like a blaze, is it reminds me of what the three Hebrew children said to King Nebuchadnezzar when they were staring down the absolute verdict of a fiery furnace. And King Nebuchadnezzar looked at them. I don't have the scripture uh, in front of me, but King Nebuchadnezzar looked at them and said, and it's in the book of Daniel, uh, chapter 3, he says, "You, he says, uh, is your God able to save you from me? Basically, is your God able to rescue you from my hand? And they say back to him, essentially, again, I'm paraphrasing. I should sure. just pull up the scripture. But they say back to him, basically, look, his ability is not in question. He's able to. But even if he doesn't, we're not bowing to that. Right. Like right. even if he even if he doesn't, we're not bowing down to that other thing. And what you're talking about these that was such a great tent- veggie tale. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I did love it. Um, the tentative, continual steps through the mist. Mm-hmm. There is an even if he does not attitude that we need to adopt more 
than yes. the things at which we want to shore up and protect ourselves from and barricade against the monsters in the mist. Because what was so amazing, I'm remembering this now, watching the film, and I was I was so taken with the fact that, oh, that's Melissa McBride. Um, you know, that was a really fun revelation there. But when she's exiting the store or trying to, I remember having this, and this is what the film is after, and so it did its work well, of this this pang of what would you do? Like, who are you in this story? Mm. Are you the mm-hmm. one who cowers in fear at the unknown? And like, dude, like they, it's not even that the threat is unknown. They're watching their folks get murdered. Like this is, oh, it's not like yeah. there isn't oh, real yeah. threat and they're unsure. It is. We know it's in there. Um, yes. but, but again, the, uh, fear that drives you to cower or the self-sacrifice that drives you forward to, in her case, just into the unknown in order to be present and, and protecting her, her own children. And I think what really like just dents my heart to ponder in these scenarios is that just this notion of running the race. I'm, I'm, I'm at, I'm, I don't want to dive too hard into that language, but I'm making it part of our tentative steps through the mist notion. Like there are people who are going to fall off like, Mm. and, and, and they may be peers and friends and loved ones. And, and I, you know, I don't know. I don't want to, I don't know if I mean to follow that path too, too heavily, but, but that's hope that, that is, that is how we sort of quantify hope. Is how into the mist are you willing to to, to walk and traverse? To right. You know, right. and and that's a that's a difficult question for all of us to wrestle with. And a lot of times, and, and this would probably be my final thought on the situation is a lot of times if you want to have your superstitions or your your totems shored up, you'll find ways for that to happen. Because I, I mentioned earlier about how the wasp does not. Sting, Mrs. Carmody, which she leverages as right. verifiable yes. proof that she is God's agent in it, and there's there's all kinds of reasons why that being my, that creature might not have stung her. She was very still. She was standing very still, wasn't moving. Um, it landed on her. Clothes. She's a terrible person. Maybe stinging to them is like an act of affection. <laughs> Exactly. So maybe it's like, I don't like you. I don't like your smell, so I'm going to leave. I mean, right. there's there's all kinds of reasons why it might not have, but she leverages it and infuses purpose in that particular observation, right? And one of the things that we must be continually aware of is that faith is is really a difficult walk of continual, steady, anchored, measured uh, conviction, despite the swaying difference of objective evidence. Right. Like right now, you have conditions in which it would be very easy. It would be very easy to not only fabricate monsters in the mist; they can show them to you. They can they can absolutely create a thing for you to be afraid of and present it to you, and then say, "Okay, this is why we need to." Shore right. up the plate glass. Yep. This is why we need to, you know, to cower ourselves over in here. This is why you need to follow this, follow this, follow that. And I do think there is an imperative to us 
to remember fundamentally, and this is one of the things that really devastates me about, you say you don't indict them at the end. I have compassion I'm, for I'm, them. I'm, hear me. Don't hold me to that language. I'm just feeling out. No, I understand. Right. Sure, sure, sure. I have compassion for them, yes. truly, because they have seen some things that, un- that help me to, as you've said, understand the choice they make at the end. But they also fundamentally abandon certain things that it's like there, there are no other scenarios in which someone might consider to do a thing like that. And, and I feel like sometimes you have to, I keep going back to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that like sometimes you have to say like, oh no, it's possible we could get out of this, but the fact is, even if we don't make it out of this, we're not doing that. Right. And right. I feel like so many believers of this day have abandoned fundamental this far no further boundaries and said like oh no but this justifies it this justifies it so we can abandon all of the compulsion to uh, protect you know the lost to care for the impoverished we can reject all of uh, welcoming the stranger language all of that kind of stuff because this justifies it mm-hmm. and i feel like sometimes we're using this mist language sometimes you have to continually venture your way out into the mist where there be monsters knowing that hey even even if we don't make it out of this, we're not going there. Even right. if we are not rescued, even if we will not bow to that, we will not succumb to the abandonment of hope and the embrace of fear that would ultimately, because that's, that's what he's left with. Yep. He, and, and I mean, extending this film beyond where the film takes us, I don't see him making it much longer. Like, sure, you know, no. Like, like this, no. Not, there's no way he will be able to live with himself after the choice that he's made there. Um, but... That level of hope abandonment takes place so frequently on individual levels, and it's happening on a national level, and it happens on a community level where you just abandon the steady through line of what the Lord has given to us as a steady anchored hope and instead say, no, don't you see the monsters in the mist? We have no choice. And and we, we should all, conviction for myself, perhaps for our listeners, should all be more willing and ready to embrace this even if he does not attitude like we are not going here regardless of the circumstance that you that you lay in front of me we are not going here and uh and steadily you know piece by piece one foot in front of the other make your way through the mist and yes in this film two people do that two versions of people do that one person ventures out into the mist alone fearful for her children and we see her safe with her children in her arms at the end of it. Another man ventures out with new friends and uh, and and his child and his child, and that and his story goes differently. To just put it that way, um, and the only difference was, in my very reductive imagination of this film, is the way they approached their mission and purpose and navigation of this mist and mm. what their responsibility in it was. Uh, and I feel like, yes, there's, there's mist all around us and there's monsters in them, but we have been given some very specific direction. And as we stay steady in that, it yes, that road is narrow. Yes, that path is treacherous at times, but staying that course, uh, whether or not we are rescued, uh, there will be a very profound measure of hope to be had along the journey that we can build each other up in if we're so willing. Right. And um, I don't know. It's 
<laughs> we've we've talked we've talked a lot on this film. We should probably go ahead and go to the to the fog meter. Are you are you good to go to the fog meter? Is I that, mean, is I don't that know. That's the fog meter has a connotation of like mistiness to it, so I'm it's a little true. worried about going to it. There's monsters in the. In I the know, fog meter. but I want to stay in the grocery store and eat all the canned goods. Yeah, we we know you like those crazy people. Star, yeah, we know you like those Starburst jelly beans. Um, I, so I do, brother. <laughs> and the Reeses. Um, so uh, I we would measure, be, I would be that one. Like I'd, we'd be hanging out in the grocery store for like ten days, and I'm like, Nah, I'm good. I'm You'd eat all of them. I'd eat yes. the candy, you know, while all the sensible people are eating the veggies and stuff. We're, like, we're well aware. We're well aware. I just <laughs> it's it's my. It's my cross to bear, brother. It's my cross to bear. <laughs> it's your sweet cross to bear. Yeah. Um, so we measure every film uh, that we discuss by the fog meter, uh, fear, and God. So, uh, Nathan, I would invite you to express your thoughts on the fear measurement of Frank Darabont's 2007 film based on the work by Stephen King, The Mist. I'm going to give it a seven. Um, mm. I think that... You know, the, the scare factor in terms of creature stuff is a little mitigated by the datedness of the production values, but that is completely offset by the, just all the existential stuff we've been talking about and, 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 and a real tangible, palpable illustration of a, a hope lost. Yeah. That's, a, that's scary. Absolutely. That's, that is scary as hell and may in fact be hell. You know? Yeah. Um, I'm going to give this film on the fear factor an eight. Uh, I would say easily five of those points are the ending itself. It's, it's a very powerful, haunting, devastating and effective ending. Um, for the God measurement, the substance at play here, there's so many that we didn't even get into so many, uh, lines about fear and denial that take place. This film is a pretty, pretty rich script for subject matters of that nature, and uh, and I feel like the ending has a lot of uh, power to it as well. Uh, gosh, I'm going to go eight for the God meter as well. Uh, I'm an eight down the line for this film. Um, I'm going to go. I'm going <laughs> to. I'm going to pull a Reed Lackey and one up you. Uh, I'm going to eight and a half you, brother. Um, there it is. I I think for a plot that is actually kind of thin, you know, it's it's a pretty basic kind of narrative. Uh, they get a ton of mileage out of the rich dynamic, not just character interplay, but just sort of social dynamics. Like, what does it mean to be human in the face of threat? And I think that's yeah. a really powerful, uh, a really powerful way they've done it. Um, so looking like we are, uh, just a, a, a slight dial click above our former, former normal wow have mm. you ever said the phrase former normal <laughs> former normal former normal sounds complicated former normal <laughs> wow uh so we are giving uh frank darabont's adaptation of stephen king's the mist an eight on the fog meter which feels well mm. earned absolutely absolutely i but... would i would ask Read. Yeah, I, go, I yeah. would ask if you recommend it, but I feel like that's a kind of a, a, a an pretty obvious pretty given. choice at this point. I mean, th this is the kind of film that uh, I think people should see. I do highly recommend it. If I, if you take, if you've listened to the episode, you know this already. If you were to take my recommendation and then just get mad at me because I subjected you to that film with that ending, all right, my bad. But, <laughs> but I recommend it. It's a. It, yes, it has a devastating ending, but it is a very, very powerful film. 
Um, now, I guess, are you going to be hoity-toity? And if they don't have access to the black and white version, are you going to tell them not to watch it? Yes. Really? If you watch, if you, no, I'm just kidding. Oh. No, if you don't have <laughs> access to, anybody who has access to a TV can turn the color off on their TV. So everybody has access well, yeah, but to the black and white version. If you didn't initially know, that was like a... No, but uh, no, thing. of course. If you watch the film, the film is is great on its own measurement. But well, I will you know say, what? I'd if watch you haven't the, watched I watched it, the non-black and white version, and yeah, I see? still recommend it. You still recommend it. It's still, <laughs> although, yes. I mean, I sometimes wonder if we've lost our, our barometer for like what is sensitively capable on people to, to consume oh, some of these. You know what I mean? Like this, this is understood. a this is yeah. a heavy, heavy flick. Very heavy film. The, the yeah, deep, yeah, yeah. especially the deeper you go into it. But um, you know, if you've stuck with us for two months or two years, you know kind of what we are about. And I would highly recommend this uh, as a as a date night movie. <laughs> <laughs> it's a date. It's a date movie. It's yeah. a date movie. Yeah, yeah. Just um, enter the mist. Well, that puts another uh, installment of the fear of God in the books, another and installment hashtag of hashtag 19, 19 yeah. in the books. Um, but wait, there's more for hey. a low price. Of, um, so next week, we're going to be continuing with this uh, sort of abbreviated bunch of hashtag 19. Um, we're going to be diving back into more Stephen King next week. I'm so excited. I'm going to see if I can leverage this for the whole year. Um, but uh, we're going to be diving into next week, prepare yourself in one of two ways or in both ways. Either seek out and read the very brief novella called Cycle of the Werewolf, or seek out the mid-1980s film called Silver Bullet, screenplay by Stephen King based on the novella by Stephen King, um, Silver Bullet slash Cycle of the Werewolf. That is where we are headed next week. Nathan, thank you so much for having this conversation with me, and uh, thank you listeners, always you, for listening to us yet again. We'll see you guys next week. So we really, there there really were no, do you think there were gorillas out in the midst of the movie? Like, like I know there's like, I mean, do you think there's at least one maybe there's one. at least one maybe but one. it's got like it's got like the face of like like a, a mandibled oh yeah 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 it's got, yeah, like it's got a, a predator face spider That's buddy it. no 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 it's like got a predator face it's, and, it's uh, predator predator gorilla is, oh that sounds <laughs> that sounds wicked i don't i i don't know i like the safety of the grocery store The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but it is not the end of the conversation. You can continue this conversation in a variety of ways. On Twitter, at The Fear of God. On Instagram, at Fear of God Podcast. You can like or follow us on Facebook or join the Fear of God Facebook discussion group. Follow Reed on Twitter, at Reed Lackey. And Nathan, at The Nathan Rouse. Email us at fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com or visit morethanonelesson.com to comment on the official episode posts. And lastly, if you listen to us through iTunes, we would greatly appreciate a rating or a review. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week.